Turn with me then back to 2 Peter chapter 1. Last week I was silly enough to think that I could cover 15 verses and didn't come anywhere close. The Lord's kept these thoughts on my heart and we want to pick up where we left off last week as the Lord continues to work what he had Peter write so many years ago into my heart and I pray yours as well about this idea that we started to speak of last week of a faith of equal standing as Peter says here and we'll reread beginning in verse 1 we will likely only make it through a portion even again today but we'll leave that to the Lord we pray that God would speak in whatever verses he has us to cover here today so if you have your Bibles, let's read beginning in verse 1 of 2 Peter chapter 1. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have, t- who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. And this is where we want to direct our thoughts today in these final few verses of our reading, verses 5 through 7. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. We want to end there. We're confident this is where God would have us to go. Confident we'll not make it any further than there today. Last week, as I said, we spoke on these first few verses, and we spoke about the idea that Peter is bringing to bear of a faith of equal standing. We talked about the fact that we have an opportunity in our lives, us individually, to have a faith of equal standing with that of Peter himself and Paul and all of the men and women that we read read about in Scripture. And I pray that that is something that intrigues you and that motivates you to find what it is to have this faith of equal standing with Peter. And we talked briefly about how it's possible to use the same word to describe very different things. And so Peter, so Peter qualifies when he talks about faith, he uses this qualification, this not just faith in the, in the whims of the world or the way that people might express faith, but he says a faith of equal standing, a faith like ours, like mine, Peter would say. This faith that he would go on to say that we focused on last week was a a faith given to him and to you and to me, if we have it, by God. That it was something he has given, that he has provided, that he has offered and he has in his ability and his divine power, as it said in verse 3, has granted to us. He has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. And God has provided us that ability to have a faith of equal standing with Peter. And he goes on and he talks about the promises and the ability to become people who are partakers of the divine nature. And then he says what we want to look at today in beginning in verse 5. For this Reason. What reason? What? Well, certainly what he has just said. The reason that he points out of why we are going to begin to fulfill what he is going to lay out here in verses 5 through 7, this very familiar 
passage of Scripture of these things that we are to supplement our faith with or to add to our faith, depending on the translation that you read. But all of that that's getting ready to come, that we'll look at here today if it's God's will, it all is predicated on a reason that he has already outlined. And that reason is God's providing for us the power to become his through repentance and faith, his grace upon us. The reason that we are going to go through, that we are to go through these steps that he is going to talk about is always anchored in the reality that it was God who has given us the power, the ability, the knowledge of Him, and the grace to become one of His. So you see that grace then obligates to behavior after the blessing. That's important. When Peter talks about a faith of equal standing with his own, He talks about a faith that is obtained through grace that God has given, but that grace then obligates to behavior after the blessing. It is not, grace is not, the state of being blessed because of prior behavior. We are not blessed by God because of what we have done, but we do what we do because we have been blessed by God. The order is very important. The order is essential for us to understand what the Christian life is really about. Our being called by God to His own glory and excellence is the reason that we begin to walk down this road. And if we have a title today, it is A Faith of Equal Standing, Part 2, The Road from Faith to Love. The Road from Faith to Love. And we walk this road from faith to love because of the reason that God has given to us already in the first few verses. Our opportunity to become partakers in the divine nature, when God changes us at salvation, He gives us the ability to become something like Him. That ought to floor us. That ought to shake us a bit. That ought to jump off the page, as they say. That, that ought to capture our attention. That should, that should be something that when we read it, we almost have to stop and pause and say, did I read that right? Did God just say that I have the ability to become a partaker, a part-taker of His divine nature? That ought to sober us into attention and wakefulness about what is to come as Peter writes this and as those who read it read, read it or those who read it took part in reading it together. To think that for a moment that in this life even we can become partakers of the d- divine nature of God is, is a miracle. This is a miracle. To take a sinful man and change him in such a way that he can become a partaker of the divine nature? That's a miracle. That's that's inexpressible. That's uh, unexplainable outside of God's mercy and grace. And if you don't believe me, then I ask you to remember, if you are one who does indeed have a faith of equal standing with Peter, and you forget that this is something that God allows us to do, which is to become part, a, a partaker in His divine nature, and you forget maybe that that is a miracle, I want you to remember what you used to be and what even yet we remain to be in our moments of weakness. In 1 Corinthians verse, chapter 6, beginning in verse 9, Paul writes to them, Or do you not know Listen to what he says. All of these things. Do you not know? Are you not aware that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, Paul says here, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, 
nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And then comes the point in verse 11, and such were some of you. And such were some of you, but you have been washed you have been sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. It sounds like Peter and Paul must have been had conversations. They certainly are serving the same God and writing about the same one and writing about the same faith that Peter here is writing about. The fact that we can become Partakers in the divine nature of God is a miracle, and surely when we consider that miracle, it is more than sufficient to engage in the activities of verses 5 through 7. Surely that would drive us and prompt us to take the steps down this road from faith to love. But I encourage you, I exhort you, and I warn you today, make sure that that is your reason to walk this road of the Christian life. That God has changed you and made you new. We should not attempt to walk the road from faith to love for any other reason. And that's particularly what Peter says here, for this very reason. For what God has done for you in making you one of His, one who was a sinner and had no hope now or in eternity, but God has changed you, He's watched you, and He's made you somebody who has the opportunity to partake of the divine nature of God. Because of that reason, walk the Christian life. Not for any other reason. Not to impress men. Because let me tell you today, if you walk the Christian life, if you walk the road from faith to love that Peter is going to outline here, I have, and, and you're expecting men to applaud you, men and women to look at you and think you're something, they won't, they won't. They will not be impressed. They'll not be impressed by you, not in the way maybe that some think, not in the way the Pharisee would think as he walked down the road in his robes, and with his Torah in his hand, and with his knowledge, and with his big words. You'll not impress men. They won't be impressed. So if you begin to walk down the Christian life hoping to impress people, you won't get very far down that road, and your reason will crumble. Your purpose, your reason, your hope will be gone quickly. In fact, not only will they not be impressed, they will probably be offended. If you walk the road of the Christian life, even though it is a road that begins in faith with God and ends in love, you'll offend people. Isn't that, isn't that incredible? That we can live as Christians in the world and often the result of that on the part of other men is that we offend them. And of course, what offends them is not us, but their sin. So let this be the reason that you set off down this road. Let this be the reason that you continue down the road. Don't do it to impress men. Don't do it because you feel like that's what's expected of you. A lot of people live a Christian life and a Christian way of life and they go to church on Sunday and they tithe and they don't curse and they live outwardly, seemingly moral lives. A lot of people do that because they feel that that's what's expected of them. But doing what is expected is not a path to a reward. It is a path to avoid punishment. It's not the path that God has sent us on. The Christian life is not only about, indeed it is not primarily about escaping punishment. It is about loving God and loving other people. If you are doing Christian things, to impress men because you feel like it's expected of you to escape some earthly consequence of disappointing someone else, you are loving and serving yourself and not God, really, when you unwrap it and look at it closely. So this is the reason that we begin 
this walk of this road of faith to love. Verses 5 through 7 would keep us all busy for the rest of our lives. I encourage you to memorize it. I encourage you to think about it and to contemplate it at various times in your life. Do something that places these verses back into your attention just as a, as a, a way of, of life somehow that brings you back to this calling. For this very reason, make every effort, he says. And then he begins to outline some things. And what stood out to me as I began thinking and praying about this is the fact that as children of God, Once we become children of God, we are complete in Him. We are made all that we need to be in order to inherit heaven because the righteousness of Jesus Christ is applied to our souls and there is nothing that needs to be added to that in order for us to go to heaven. And that is a joy. That is something that we can rejoice in. God made me His when I was 11 years old and I believed Him and I trusted Him and He saved me and there has never been a moment or another thing that I needed to add to the scale in order for me to weigh the balances and be found righteous in the sight of God. He made me righteous in His sight that day that He saved me and He justified me and made me ready for heaven with nothing else that needed to be added. So I was complete. But I have walked through this world for 31 years since that day. Longer than that, actually, I guess. I can't do the math quickly. So I was complete. But I clearly wasn't finished. And the same is said for you. You were complete the moment God saved you. But you weren't finished. Now, nothing that you're going to do down this road from faith to love is going to make you any more worthy of heaven. It's not going to make you any more meritorious of the eternity that is awaiting you in heaven. Nothing that you do. Yes, you were complete the moment that God saved you. The Bible is clear about that, and we rejoice in that, and I love that doctrine, that there is nothing else that I need to do but trust God and put my faith in Him and repent for my sin, and when He saves me, He seals me. But I wasn't finished. And Peter tells us that. He says, because of this, because of the fact that you have become able to become partakers of the divine nature, now that you are his, now make every effort. An effort in the Greek here, it's an idiom. It literally means to bring every effort into something, to do one's very best in attempting to accomplish something, to try as hard as, as possible. That's important for us to think about. Nothing that we can or need to do to add to our justification in the sight of God when God saves us. He does that. He works that in our hearts. And yet, Peter then says, yeah, you're complete. But there's a difference between being complete and being finished. And God knows when both of those points are. So then we are to bring every effort to everything we do to fulfill the call of verses 5 through 7. And I am going to run through those quickly. But we must first set this up to understand what we're talking about when we talk about these things that Peter lists. We're to bring every effort into this. And trust me, it's going to take every effort to do this, to walk this road. It's going to take every effort on your part. Successful people in most areas of life, they're often asked the question, what's the secret to your success? At the news reporter, the, the magazine columnist, the, the adoring fan, somebody who 
maybe aspires to the same success. They'll ask, what's the secret to your success? And often what they're looking for is, where's the shortcut? Right? What, what can I do? What can I copy from you that then all of a sudden have the success that you have? What is it that I can do? What's the secret to your success? People want to know that so that they too can become successful. And the answer is usually disappointing. The answer always, just about always, and I know, especially in the, frankly, the fake world that we now live in, or our culture does by and large, I know that there are shortcuts to seeming success. But real success, real accomplishment, do you know what the answer is? The secret? It's not a secret. You already know it. It's hard work. It's commitment. It's dedication. It's effort over long periods of time. Hours of effort and dedication. Things, frankly, most people simply are not willing to do. So you see, the secret to success is not that it's, it's a hidden set of things that people don't know. It's a list of things people are unwilling to do. The secret to being saved is not a mystical, theological understanding that is deeper than other people have had. It is a willingness to repent and trust God. While we must again remember that Peter started here with this fact that it was God's divine power that made us his and not our works or our merit. We must remember that. We must keep these doctrines in their place and in these ideas from scripture that God has given us. It is God's grace and his mercy that makes us his, not our righteousness, because our righteousness is filthy rags. But once we have been made his, we must remember as well that God has called us to expend every effort to reach the goal of the Christian life. This is, I think, where we often fall short. And I thank God again that he seals us, he makes us ready for heaven the moment he saves us. And I will say this as well, that when he does that, I think he plants a seed in our heart that we want to put every effort towards pleasing him. And even when we don't, we know what's going on. We realize it in our heart. God, I I want to. I know I didn't. I know I fell once again to the easy temptations of this world. I know, Father, that I didn't bring every effort to this. God, would you forgive me and help me to do so? The Christian life is a road from faith to love. And at every step along the way, Peter reminds us to make every effort to walk it. So, To this end, by the way, you're going to discover that there will be times in your life when it is going to take every ounce of your strength, your courage, your humility, and your commitment to God to be the person God has called you to be. It's going to take every ounce of what you have to give. Just like, by the way, it took our Lord every ounce of His. Do not ever forget that we know from Scripture that Jesus, our Lord and Savior, Yes, he is the son of God and divine and is God, as John said in the first chapter. But do not forget that he was also the son of man. And he understood what it was as a human being to give every effort to his father. Every effort. Every moment of every day. You talk about a life worth imitating. And a life that we'll never imitate. And yet one that we ought to strive to. And Peter uses this idea make every effort because he knew that is what it was going to take. You are going to be required in your life to marshal all your forces to the battlefield. Every last one of them, nothing in reserve. You're going to be the general who looks at his forces and says to meet this enemy that is in front of me, I can leave none of them behind. This is a stand or die moment. You're going to be in spiritual battles in your life that are going to require you to marshal every piece of, 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 of strength that you have, every component that you can bring to the battle. You will be faced with spiritual confrontations in your life when there will be no place 
to retreat. Nowhere to run. It is again a stand and fight battle. And your spiritual battles will take place here where there really are only two alternatives. Two ways that battle's going to end. Success or surrender. I thought initially as I was thinking through this and praying and writing and asking God for clarity of thought. Originally, I said it would be success or live or die. And then I thought, no, you, you can succeed whether you live or die. It's not the point of that. It's success or surrender. When you marshal all of your forces to the battlefield, that is going to be the two options that you have. And I would encourage you to face those times in your life to lay everything on the line and never surrender. It is extremely difficult. This is just by experience. It's extremely difficult to retake ground that you give to the enemy. It's hard to take it back. It's easy to give it up. It's easy to retreat to surrender the ground. He has a way, Satan does, of digging in that makes it very difficult to rid him of that area of your life once you surrender it. Anyone who has ever compromised with or surrendered to the enemy in any area of your life, you know how difficult it is to retake that ground once you've surrendered it and compromised it. You lie at work to escape consequences or to gain promotion. And you thus become known as just another person willing to sacrifice their integrity to get a leg up. You allow your thoughts to run towards evil things. You entertain those thoughts. You contemplate those things. You allow those, that thought life, as they say, to go towards evil things. And you will find it harder and harder as the days go by to bring those thoughts into subjection to Christ. Not impossible. But just be warned and thoughtful. Once you surrender the ground, Satan is not going to give it back without a fight. So make every effort, Peter says, to begin to walk this road and hold your ground. Now, again, you might think after becoming one of God's people in the world that your work is finished, that because you've been made ready for heaven, you can focus on the world and go out in the world and do all that you want to do here. But this is not the way things ought to be, according to Peter, and thus according to God. Because God used Peter merely as a penman. These are God's words to us, not just Peter's. God has saved us and he has sealed us. Yes, but he has also called us. God has saved us and sealed us when he saved us truly, when he changed us and made us his child, but he has also called us. God did not just give you something at salvation, though he did. That's not all that he did. He also called you to follow him the rest of the days of your life. And Peter adds to that here saying, give every effort to do it. Every effort. Try as hard as you can in every area of your life and ask God to give you strength. Peter tells us a lot about what that calling consists of in these few verses. And I believe that there is something about this every day you should be seeking to supplement your faith with these things. Never forget, through though this road begins with faith, he has called us to move on. But don't forget that is where it starts. Faith. You can't get on this road from faith to love without first exercising faith. What is faith? So many ways to define it. Very directly from the Greek, it is complete trust and reliance. It is to believe to the extent of complete trust and reliance. Faith in God that we're talking about here, faith of an equal standing with Peter's, is not a just-in-case faith. It's not a just-in-case faith. Faith is not a hedge 
If you're an investor, faith is not a hedge against your larger positions to protect against the downside and loss. Faith is not an insurance policy. That just in case something in this world falls to pieces, then I can at least fall back on my faith on, in God. Faith is complete trust. Trust is most needed when we cannot see and we do not understand And this is where the road begins. And again, this is why it is so hard for so many today to come to Christ. They've been told that because of our great knowledge and scientific discovery of the day, that belief is no longer necessary. And I I call that bet. Y'all remember, I think we watched this video here. Some of you may remember watching a video of, of young people on college campuses being asked about their belief in the current scientific ideas of the day. And a young student was asked, how do you know uh, that you're being told the truth about all this? And he said, I believe my professors. And there you have it. Belief. I don't believe they'd lie to me. Well, maybe they were lied to. How do you know? The answer is always boiled down to belief. As we work our way through these things, We are to supplement our faith with, note again that each step is a modifier of the previous step. And again, we'll walk through these quickly. It's not where I wanted to spend the majority of our time. I wanted to set this up so that you can think about it because the living of this is where it's going to matter. It's not going to matter if we merely know it. It's going to matter if we live it. And I encourage you today to set up to remember that for this reason I'm to walk this road. What reason? That God has made me his and he's given me the miraculous privilege to become a partaker of his very nature. And that he has saved me and redeemed me and he's called me to these things. And as we work our way through them though, remember that each step is a modifier of the one that preceded it. This is going to be important to keep in mind. If you want to complete this walk from faith to love, if you want to obey this particular call in Scripture, you are going to have to walk this road one step at a time. But we should also be careful to note that we should not look at these characteristics as binary things in the sense that we either have them or we don't. We should look at them instead in that there is a measure of the obtainment of these things. I believe there is love in the heart of every believer. But Peter says to walk this road and to find at the end of it that it is all about love for God and love for others. And he talks about supplementing, adding to our faith. Peter writes here a linear process whereby we are called to expand upon each quality with another quality. So let's look at them. And we'll be finished very quickly. Virtue, supplement your faith with virtue. Virtue, the definition, the quality of moral excellence. The quality of moral excellence. Outstanding goodness is another way it is described. Once we have faith, and again, that's where it all must begin, It isn't that we add these things to our character and then we go to God and say, look at who I am, how wonderful I am. God save me because I am all these wonderful things. It's totally opposite of that. We are sinners in the sight of God, wretched sinners in the sight of God. The more we try to clean ourselves up, the dirtier that we become. And that is not how this works. But once God saves us, cleans us, makes us his, then we can begin this. But then not are we to just begin and end there, but we are to supplement our faith, our trust, our complete trust in God with moral excellence. This idea that we are people of virtue, this is the defense against the idea that faith is something that only impacts us inwardly, that faith is hidden and out of sight. To the contrary, according to Peter here, we are to supplement our faith with the quality of outstanding moral excellence. There is is little 
that casts more doubt and criticism on the Christian faith than a person who claims to be a follower of Christ and professes faith in God and acts with moral depravity. And it acts in ways contrary to moral excellence. When you think about it, by the way, the times when we are called upon to be people of moral excellence, this is why I think this is just incredible. It's always something, again, that amazes me when God shows something of what he's saying in his word that maybe I hadn't seen before. Why does he say to supplement faith with moral excellence, with virtue? Because at the moment when we are called upon to demonstrate moral excellence, when we are called upon to say no to the lie and yes to the truth, when we are called upon to say no, this kind of living is wrong in the sight of God and say yes to the way God has said in His Word, at those moments when moral excellence is called upon the most is when our faith in God is also tested the most. Think about it. The times that you might cheat on a test because everyone is cheating on the test and it's the only way to get a passing grade. No, it's wrong. And Peter says, supplement your faith in God with moral excellence and say, no, that is not right. Or maybe blame someone else at work for your failure. Because the point is to keep the job and the money more than faith and trust in God. So then the reason we are to be people of moral excellence is because it supplements, it shows, it expands upon our faith in the eyes of those around us and they see him. And that's the whole reason we're here. That's the whole reason we're not yet finished. It's the whole reason we're walking this road. It's because he's not done. We trust that God will one day right every wrong and we, we remember that we ourselves are recipients of the mercy and grace of God and are not on our way to heaven because of our innate goodness and virtue, but because of his. And so we supplement our faith with virtue. Brethren, supplement your faith with virtue. Boy, we, we need a people to be virtuous in this land. That stand out like a sore thumb. Not because, or not in order to be good people, not to impress people, but because it supplements what is there, our faith in God. Be a person of moral excellence, above reproach. By so doing, shine a light on your faith, yes, but shine a brighter light on the object of your faith, Christ. That's what moral excellence is about. It's not the Pharisees' moral excellence. Look at me. You know what? Our moral excellence is, were it not for God, I could not be this kind of person. Were it not for God, there go I to the one who falls. And we trust and we know that. And then he says, supplement your virtue with knowledge. Don't supplement your faith with knowledge. I mean, ultimately, it's a chain. I get that. But he says, supplement your other. He would have said, supplement your faith with these other things, but he doesn't. He says, supplement this with this, and then this with this, and then this with this, and it's very linear. It's very logical, and I think there are reasons for that. So we are to supplement our virtue, which we've supplemented our faith with, with knowledge. And knowledge is just the content of what is known. It's how much you know. We are to add to our virtue things that we know. So we have begun with faith, we work to supplement that faith with virtue, and now we are to supplement our virtue, our moral excellence with knowledge. Quite simply said, we are to add to the library of the things we know. I, that's what it means. The Christian is not to be a naive person. We are not to be ignorant. It's not what God wants us to be. In fact, I would tell you that one of the greatest causes of success in our land was our knowledge of God. And our willingness to learn and discover and know. We should never be afraid of learning. The society we live in, though, is so ignorant of what virtue is that it can be hard to get an understanding of what a virtuous life looks like when we don't consider and add to the things that we know. Sometimes we act in ways that are not virtuous out of ignorance. 
And I think God looks at that differently. I think God knows when we're ignorant, but here God doesn't take us off the hook. He says, add to your faith virtue. And by the way, add to your virtue knowledge. The things that you know. So Peter, knowing this does not take us off the hook by allowing us to say, I didn't know. Listen, if you're saying things frequently, if you're saying the phrase, I didn't know, 50 years after you've been saved, and you're saying a lot of things like, I didn't know that was wrong. I'm afraid maybe you haven't been walking this road where you're adding to your knowledge of what God has said is right and what God has said is wrong. Shaping your mind and heart. Peter doesn't take us off the hook. I didn't know, as we have always said, right? The policeman pulls you over and he says, the speed limit is 40 and you were going 60. And you said, I didn't know it was 40. And he says, well, that's nice, but that doesn't make any difference. He calls upon us here, Peter does. And of course, it is ultimately God calling upon us to increase the content the, the, the library of our knowledge. And now he says, supplement your knowledge with self-control. Self-control here to exercise complete control over one's desires and actions. To exercise complete control over one's desires and actions. If you are a person of self-control, you will stick out like a sore thumb in the world that we live in today. Someone with virtue and knowledge can often be at risk, though, of being a person without self-control. It's interesting to think about. To think that because of what we know and because of our own virtue, that we can then act in any and whatever way we choose. That somehow our knowledge gives us the liberty to behave in harmful and perhaps even ungodly and arrogant ways. Don't believe me? Look at David. Look at Hezekiah. Look at so many in Scripture who God blessed. Look at Solomon. Our knowledge and our virtue does not give us license to be unself-possessed without self-control. And then he says to, to take that self-control and modify it or supplement it, we should say, with steadfastness, which is the capacity to continue to bear up under difficult circumstances. That's what steadfastness is. So we are to be people of self-control in a steadfast way. We are to be self-controlled when it is most difficult to be self-controlled. We can all be self-controlled when there's nothing pressing us. When there's nothing bothering us. But Peter says to supplement your self-control. That, that time when maybe at moments you have it. And I'm thankful to God when that happens, that God allows us to have self-control. Peter says, but don't let that just be snapshots of your life. If somebody was walking around with a video camera, they would see somebody who is steadfastly self-controlled. Even in the difficult times, in the difficult circumstances. So interesting to me that we are to supplement our self-control with steadfastness or when the circumstances of life make it very difficult to be self-controlled. He goes on, supplement that self-control with godliness. And the most direct explanation and definition of this that I found in my study is an appropriate set of beliefs and devout practice. Godliness an appropriate, a right set of beliefs and devout practices, of course, in light of who God is, supplement our patience, our steadfastness in times of trial with the quality of appropriate belief and devout practice, adhering to a godly manner of life in the midst of our steadfast self-control in our virtue and our faith. And he says to take that godliness and supplement it with brotherly affection. Affection for one's fellow believer. That's exactly what it means. But I want you to notice how the road turns here. Every step along the way has been a step forward, a step in the same direction. It's about you, your heart, 
It's indirectly about others, but it is about what you do inwardly with your heart and your mind before God as you supplement your faith with these things. Now, though, now it shifts to others. This road from faith to love, at some point it turns from self to others. It turns from the focus of, on me to a focus on others. And if our focus never comes off of ourself, we become Pharisees at this point. We become self-righteous. We become arrogant. We begin to look down our nose at the world instead of brokenhearted over their sin and their condemnation and their just penalty of hell that is awaiting them. That's not where the road ends, though. It begins to turn and to shift, and we are to add to all of these beautiful Christian characteristics, this faith, this love that, or, that we're going to end with, this virtue, this knowledge, this self-control, this steadfastness, and this godliness that is to turn itself towards others. What a coming short it would be to walk the road to the point of godliness and not supplement that with affection for our fellow believer in God. That, that steadfastness, that virtue, that that God has welled up within you, it needs an outlet. It needs to flow outwardly. As we spoke a few weeks ago, the difference between a desert, a swamp, and a river. It's got to go somewhere. This whole point of the Christian life is that it goes and it flows into others. And it starts with our fellow believer. And what a coming short it would be to live a Christian life that to this point you could even call somebody, yeah, they live godly life. And that's, that's, that's commendable. They're people of virtue. That's commendable. They trust God. They believe in God. That's commendable. But they never let that flow into the love of their fellow believers. To look at the needs of others before our own. To pray for others as well as ourselves. To be concerned for others as well, of course, as ourselves. And he finishes it here with love. Supplement that love for our fellow believer with love. And it just ends it there. Love. Love is to have a love for someone or something that is based, and this is the word that jumped out me at the definition, based on sincere appreciation and high regard. Sincerity towards others. We are to have brotherly affection supplemented by a love, a sincere love for everyone. It's not made up. This love that we are to find at the end of this path, it's not fake. It's not contrived. It's not pretty at times, to be honest with you. In fact, it's ugly. It can be very difficult instead of the happy sunshine and roses that many people want to think about it. Love sometimes is the hardest thing to do and the ugliest thing to live through. You ever thought about this? Boy, if I just didn't love, this wouldn't bother me. But love is the calling of the Christian life. This is where the road ends in this sense. A sincere love for others. We are to have brotherly affection for our fellow believer, and we are then to be people that you just, when you think about them, you just think, boy, they, they just love sincerely. They're not doing it to impress people. They don't do these things and care if people even know. But they're truly and sincerely concerned about others. So, given this list, I want to end with this. Given, given this list of things, can any of us with any intellectual or spiritual honesty and integrity claim that the Christian life ends the moment it begins? It does not. You are made complete in Christ when He saves you, but you're not finished. You've just begun to walk this road from Faith to love. 
Can anyone claim that the way most people, though, look at the Christian life today is anything like the way Peter did? And thus, can we not say that Peter was talking about a faith of a different kind when he writes here? A faith of equal measure with his own is different from so much of what people call faith today. If you're saved, I am grateful and wonderfully thankful to God that he has saved you and he has made you complete in him. We're going to spend an eternity together doing things that we can't begin to comprehend right now in such love and joy and completeness and holiness and happiness. We, we couldn't begin to express them all, I don't think, though we can contemplate. I'm thankful for that. But we're still here now. And we're to walk this road now. If you're saved, that's a wonderful blessing. It is a blessing that stretches human language to its breaking point. But you are not finished. You have only just begun. If you don't know the Lord today, He is calling you, I hope and pray, to come to Him to take this step of faith. That's where you've got to start. You don't have to finish this road to get to heaven. You just have to get on this road that God will place you on. Trust Him completely. Believe Him when He says that you need to repent and ask for forgiveness. Wrestle with those sins. Understand what Jesus did on the cross in some capacity. Bleeding there in your place took the place of a man named Barabbas. Bar meaning son of. Abba meaning father. This man whose name was son of the father which is all of our names in one way or another. Son of those who came before us, you are Barabbas. Christ took your place and died there on the cross for you. If He's working with you, I pray that you'd seek Him today. If you know Him, I pray that you would begin. If you have begun, and again, and I'll, I'll finish here, I, I, this is not binary in the sense again that you go, okay, I have faith, and now I add virtue. Okay, now I have virtue, now I add knowledge. This is a, an analog thing, not binary. There are degrees and measures of greater and greater faith, greater knowledge, greater virtue, greater self-control. But there is a supplementing of each with the other that is helpful as we think about the Christian life. And I pray that the Lord would bless his word. Let's have a song.